praying for the work of God uh, to be carried on well in our hearts and our souls. And we pray diligently for those who teach us the scriptures. But for the last few weeks, we've been learning how to engage in a regular, focused, intentional habit of prayer. And what we've wanted to do is look to Jesus' instruction, his explicit instruction, this instruction that he, he taught over and over and over. All throughout his Galilean ministry, he was teaching us these kinds of things. He was saying these very words, sermon after sermon. And even the disciples, after hearing that over and over and over, would watch him pray and they would ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. And what he would instruct them were the very words that he had been teaching over and over in his sermons, reminding us that if you want to know exactly what you're supposed to do in prayer, what you're supposed to say, the themes of prayer, the biblical themes of prayer, there really isn't much more than what we find right here that the Lord really wants you to think about. And yes, you can deepen them, you can define them further, you can see them expressed in a variety of other kinds of prayer that you will find throughout the Bible, but these are really the fundamental themes of prayer. If you could concentrate on these, if we could pray together as a church this way, if you could pray individual in this way, I think it would really help you to pray in a biblical way. If you recall, this prayer that we're looking at in Matthew chapter 6 has two parts. The first part we've looked at for a couple of weeks in verses 9 to 10, and it really was the theme of focus upon God. Focus upon God. You pray for the sanctifying of God's name. You're actually asking him that he would cause his name to be viewed and valued as holy in the lives and through other people. You're praying for the sanctifying of God's name. And that can be very practical. You can look at every area of your life, the people who are involved in your life, and you're asking God to so intervene in their lives that they would value and cherish his name in the various venues of their life. You ask him to do that. Second, you pray for the coming of God's kingdom. That is the rule of the Messiah through his message, the gospel, that brings ultimately his final reign. That's his kingdom. You're praying for the coming of God's kingdom. And you do that, you pray that for those who don't know Christ. You pray that ultimately for Christ to come and establish his reign on the earth where all things will be under his authority. Pray for the coming of his kingdom. That's how you focus on God. And thirdly, you pray for the accomplishing of God's will. That is the will of God that has been revealed to us in the scriptures. You're praying that God would so work that people, institutions, society, anything you could think of really would accomplish what God has done and what he desires to do as he's expressed in the scriptures. Pray for the accomplishing of God's will. And of course, we pray for that to be done ultimately as well. When will his will be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven? When heaven actually comes to earth. And we pray for that to happen as well, for the ultimate expression of God's will to be accomplished. That's how you focus on God. And I find it very helpful to think of this focus upon God, to use that Really, in the opening of prayer, I I remember being taught years and years ago that if you really want to pray well, then you have to spend a little time just kind of meditating on the attributes of God, which is good and that's right and helpful. 
But I, I would almost feel guilty if I ever brought a request to God without first spending time doing that. Have you ever felt that way? You don't have to feel that way because Jesus said in the very beginning, our father who is in heaven, and he asked for a request right off the bat. But it's not a kind of request that's just focused on me. It's one that's really focused upon God. Sometimes you you sense that too when you are in a season of prayer, perhaps with a group of people and uh, and you've noticed that you feel maybe a pressure or you, you think someone else has this pressure that we have to have this kind of formal introduction to prayer and we need to rehearse our systematic theology before we get to any request. You ever been in that? I kind of feel that at times. I've got to have a formal introduction and rehearse these things and then we can ask God for something. But if you come from a standpoint in which you're the child of God before the Father, ask what would bring glory to his name and, and ask him to do it. He loves to do that for those who are his. So feel no guilt about that. I'm not saying don't think on the greatness of God, of course. Do think on it, but ask him. Feel no guilt in getting right to the point to bring requests that would honor his name. Focus on God. There's another part of prayer that we're going to look at this morning, and it, and it really does get to the heart of the matter of where we are in our life. But I want you to think about it in terms of what's been going on around us. We've had a lot going on around us, haven't we? That's been unique. And, and that has actually touched every single one of us. Things like, yes, dare I say it publicly, the virus, the plague, at least our monitored plague. How do you pray about that? How do you pray about that? I wonder if you can move into this second part of prayer, which is not just focus upon God, but pray personally. That's really the second aspect of this prayer, pray personally. Hasn't, hasn't something like COVID hit you personally? I, I bet it has. I'm pretty sure it has because I've talked to most of you. There's a few visitors out there maybe I haven't met and haven't talked to, but I, I'm pretty sure it has because almost every conversation we seem to have this day has something related to COVID. Have you noticed that? Aren't you sick of it? Well, then why do you keep doing it? <laughs> I don't know either because I do too. I mean, it's a global pandemic and it's actually impacted every single person on the planet, right? Whether they've had it or not, it's actually impacted our entire world all at the same time. And everybody has a response to it. In our country, we know it's been highly politicized. It is something very difficult to discern the legitimate effects logically and scientifically. We all know that. It's difficult to converse with people about it, but we keep talking about it incessantly. Because it's impacted us and it's impacted us personally. And the responses have touched on all kinds of areas within our personal life, our relationship with family, our jobs, our neighborhoods, our schools, our church life, political views, friendships, health, on and on and on. It's hard to find something that hasn't been touched personally by this pandemic. And that's just the virus. We think of other issues that are going on within our country, particularly like the social justice issue that's been influencing all of our relationships. It has had also a pervasive impact in our culture most recently, whether in personal experience or personal opinion. Everybody has thoughts on this. We're all thinking this through and what's the biblical response? What's the right response? What's the right personal way to think these things through? Showing up in every venue of life 
Not only that, you, you think about another element of public life that's impacting us personally, political life. I mean, we're all impacted by that, the political turmoil in America where we're virtually turning on one another constantly. I mean, should I even talk about that this morning? Well, I'm not going to talk about the right way to view the political issues going on, but every single person in this room has thoughts about that. It's impacting you personally. It's driving you in personal conversation, responses. It's, it's dividing some relationships. It's having a personal impact. It's hard to navigate some of those waters. Have you ever noticed? It's really hard to know today what is true in the public sphere. What's accurate? What's the right way to respond to what? It's a very challenging time personally. And if you even took those three things like COVID and social justice and the political atmosphere and you'd put them all together, which is what's happening too. It's a real mess in our world. Oh, and then by the way, we get to the normal things of life, like family and our jobs and our relationships with neighbors and all these things that before there was a pandemic, we still had challenges with personally. Our personal lives are easily being overwhelmed. How do we pray about those things? How do we pray about those things? When the shutdowns happened, I'm curious, did you find yourself during that shutdown, because you had time, did you find yourself being more devoted and dedicated to personal prayer? Did you find your times of prayer and intercession before the Lord lengthening? Were they more consistent Were you being driven to your knees before the Lord about all the things that were going on in an unprecedented time in our history? Did you find yourself interceding before God more? Perhaps so. Or perhaps you said yes and I was praying all the time and I felt like I was praying more and more and more but maybe you found that your prayers were full of anxiety. Isn't that interesting? How many times have you worried in prayer And you find yourself rising from the time of prayer and you're not necessarily settled in your soul. You might even be more anxious. You found that to be true at times? So then what does that say about the way that we have been personally praying about the personal issues of our life? I think some Christians are getting to a point where they feel theologically lethargic also. I've heard it in some And they just tell themselves and they tell others, well, I believe in God's sovereignty. He'll just do whatever he wants. Almost as if "Ah, our prayers are insignificant. He's just going to do whatever he wants anyway. More than likely, those of you who are here today are not typically prayerless people because you're here. You're in church. And if you think about it, we've been praying since we started Whether it's an opening prayer, reading a psalm that was a prayer, whether it's songs that we're singing to God, that's prayer, being led in prayer by an individual. And even now, we're likely interacting with the Lord, thinking through things in connection with his word. That's prayer. We're going to respond to him in prayer. I mean, there's prayer that's going on all throughout the service. So you're probably the kind of person who you have some acquaintance with prayer. And yet you would probably say, but I need to learn how to pray 
better and more. And I need to think carefully about what the, my prayers, the way I'm praying about the things in my life, what, what it's saying about me and about the way I pray. Well, I want to suggest to you that when we're thinking about the things in our own personal life and the requests of our own heart, Matthew 6 is not just a model of how to think about God, it's also a model of how to pray about the personal issues of life. In fact, we're going to look at three different ways to pray personally. It'll, over this week and next week, we'll try to round out most of our, our conversation on prayer uh, for Matthew 6 next week. But we'll look at, we'll look at least two of these ways this morning, but just, just different ways to pray personally. And you could actually take the ways that I'm going to suggest, really the ways that Jesus tells us to pray, and you could think about all of those issues that are going on from vaccines and COVID and politics and social justice and all the other issues, and you could think of them in terms of these headings that we're thinking through. In fact, I would suggest you do that. This might actually change the way you pray personally about the issues of your life. It might actually reorient how you think, what you read, and how you allow what you read to influence you and drive you. It might help you to see the anxieties of your heart begin to settle in a real thorough trust in God that doesn't leave you lethargic but active. So how do we pray personally? Well, you can see that there is a shift from moving away from just focusing focusing upon God, verse 10, your kingdom, your will be done, to praying about things personally in verse 11, give us this day, forgive us our debts as we forgiven our, our debtors, do not lead us into temptation. There's a shift there, so you can carefully see it, a directional shift. Now, I want to be careful with that. When I say the first part is focus upon God, the next part is pray personally, I I want to be careful of how we think that through. Yes, we should be careful in suggesting that the first half of this model is focused upon God, and the second half is focused upon us, because I'm not suggesting that the first part does not include anything about us. When you're thinking about God, you're thinking about the issues of life that are impacting you in front of God, so you're very much in mind even when you're focusing on God. And I'm also not suggesting that the second half of this model is not God-centered. It certainly is. It's radically God-focused. We're still praying to God himself, asking him to act. And at the same time, we're asking him to act in issues that are highly personal to us. There is a change here from the upward-oriented issues to those that have more personal concerns. So how do we pray personally? So we're going to look at three ways. We'll consider two this morning, then we'll look at the, the third next Lord's Day, plus some very practical ways in which we can put all this together and really enhance our dedicated and, and intentional times of prayer. So just two ways this morning among the three of which we'll pray personally in a biblical way as Jesus instructed us. So let's look at the first one. Let's pray for the providing of our needs. Let's pray for the providing of our needs. That's what he calls us to pray for in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. 
One of the interesting things about this statement, especially the way it's phrased in the Greek New Testament, is that the words daily bread are before the request. So it literally reads, daily bread, give us this day. The issue is not so much on the request, but on the daily nature of your need. The daily bread, give us today. What are the needs? Wealth in Jesus' ancient Jewish culture was not as diversified as our American culture. Probably wouldn't take us too much to recognize that. And the word bread, even in the ancient world, signified more than just a loaf. It refers to daily sustenance or basic necessities. That's the idea. It's the theme of this. The emphasis in the term daily could refer to requesting some specific upcoming needs, or it could be just a general request. I need sustenance this very day in a very general way. In fact, the word daily is only used twice in the New Testament. It's used here and it's used in the, in the passage in Luke chapter 11, verse 3, where this is recorded as well. And more than likely, it reflects a common Jewish manner of prayer. So if you looked at the life of a typical Jewish person in the ancient world, they began their day with specific morning prayers and they ended their day with specific evening prayers. And if this is kind of a response to that or connected to that idea, if it was used in the regular morning prayers and the term would reflect a request for needs to be met as the day progresses. As we begin the day, Lord, these daily needs that are coming in front of us. If it was a prayer offered in the regular evening prayers, it was likely a prayer for the necessities of the day to come. As you finish the day and you round it out and the evening hours come, you're praying in anticipation of the day to come. In other words, we're asking God to provide what we need to survive one day at a time. This is a prayer of daily dependence upon God. We're asking God just that we would make it. I am not confident that most of us think of life that way. I mean, honestly, if you haven't been on a hospital bed with IVs throughout and machines connected, how often do you find yourself really just thinking, I just want to make it through the day. I just want my needs met for today. If I could just have that, that, that's satisfying, just today. Really? That's hard for us in our country. In fact, the reality is that our entire culture is kind of at war with that kind of dependent mindset, isn't it? There isn't really anything in our culture that breeds the idea of you just need to be dependent on God hour by hour, day after day. In fact, self-sufficiency is the America, American mantra. Be dependent on no one. Be self-sufficient. And you can think of that in positive ways or negative ways. Dependence upon no one else but oneself is the expected state of blessing, isn't it? Don't you think of that? Rugged individualism says, you know, I'm really blessed. I'm really not dependent on anybody. It's interesting to to think of it that way. We think of blessing as being self-sufficient. 
The blessing of God makes us self-sufficient, dependent on no one. We're more often stressed about what we're going to do for Christmas or the holidays or the birthday. Which new pairs of shoes will we add to the extended collection? How can we make the grass greener in front of our house? You know that stuff that dies every year? How can we make it better? How do we make our homes more comfortable? Which restaurant are we going to go eat at? Some of you are like, yeah, I'm kind of thinking that now. How are we going to get out? And, uh... or I, I see it in some of your clothing. You're, you're kind of worried about other things that might go on this afternoon. Because uh, really important issues. Which, which cut of meat should I get at the, uh, at the grocery store? We might even stress over it. We might even get angry of it. How, did, how dare they not have ribeye of the kind that I want when I want it? Do you know uh, a, a typical person in, in ancient Jewish culture never really thought that way? They might have meat maybe once a week. They weren't thinking of, where, you lazy people, why aren't you getting me what I want? That never crossed their mind. They couldn't think that way. Now, to be sure, we, we think about these things. There's nothing inherently evil in necessarily thinking about what's coming up in the day and which groceries we're going to buy. There's nothing necessarily evil about it. But you can see how it, it, it so easily builds a mindset that we're not dependent on God just to make it. Well, it can easily go the other way. Some can really stress themselves out on how much they can save. Right? Have there ever been any marital conflicts in this room because of someone being too stingy? Ooh, kind of hear the murmur. <clears throat> oh, sure. Sure, we, we want to get to a place where we don't have to be dependent on anyone. So we'll pile it away and stock, stock it in the bank and make as much money as we can because our goal is not to be dependent and that could be good too, right? It could be good to think ahead and plan ahead and work hard and, and store up and not be, not be thinking that, uh, you know, the Lord is just going to miraculously pro- provide for everything like he's not providing for us in our jobs and we should be careful and good stewards. I get that. But can you not breed a kind of self-sufficiency in what you save as well as in what you spend? Sure. And yet Jesus is telling us every day you should pray our daily needs. Do you even think you have them? Do you even think I've got daily needs? I'm desperate for you to provide just what I need to make it. This really does reflect the beginning of the Bible, doesn't it? You remember how the Bible begins? In the beginning, God, what did he do? created everything, the heavens and the earth, everything. The creator made everything and he made it in a certain order that it would sustain humanity. He created everything for the pleasure and the sustenance of those who would reflect his image, for the joy of those who would reflect his image across the world. He made everything so that those who bear his image would be dependent upon him and reflective of him. And that deep dependence upon God was the, the very plague that kind of infested our hearts when 
sin came because it was then that we said, I'm not sure that we really want to be dependent on God. I would like to depend on myself, Eve said, to determine what is right and wrong. Not on God, not on the creator. I'll, I'll choose what's wise. I'll choose what's good. I don't want to depend on you to do that. I can do that on my own. That certainly was the heart of the Israelites when they were in the wilderness wandering around. Can you imagine? You're in the wilderness. There's no water. You're dependent on God for water. And they complain. There's no water. Rather than, we're desperate, Lord. Could you provide water? What does the Lord do so graciously? He provides water. As soon as they have water, there's no meat. We want meat. So God gives them meat. So much So much meat that they can't consume it. He also gives them bread, doesn't he? Do you ever think about, you remember the manna? We won't look at it in detail. You can jot jot down Exodus 16, verses 13 to 21. It's a really interesting thought to think of the the manna that God provided, the little bread-like substance that would show up every morning. If you go back and you rehearse some of that, they, they were told that they were to go out and gather manna every day and how much manna were they to gather only enough for what one day what do you think the lord was teaching them daily bread daily bread be dependent each day now like normal human beings who who think well i'm just going to put a little aside you know, yes, this will be enough for today but maybe we could put a little bit more aside and that'll help you know you don't know the needs of tomorrow and so they put a little aside. And what would happen if they put a little, a little bit of that manna aside? What would happen the next day? Well, it's infested with worms. It's as if God says, no, it will be daily. You will, you will depend on me each day. And I, I want to like build it into your daily schedule. And I want you to see it, that you, you can't just hoard, you can't keep beside, even if the motives are good. I want you to be dependent on me every single day. So just get enough for you, your family, every single day. And they had to live every day. Their very sustenance lived as if they had to depend and think about their dependence on God every single day. It's probably the Old Testament example behind Jesus' idea. But you know why they had to live that way? We're told, we're actually told why they would have to live that way. Dependent on God for their very sustenance every single day. Because in Deuteronomy 31.20, we're told why they had to live that way. In Deuteronomy 31.20, the Lord reminded the Israelites, when I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which means prosperity and abundance and goodness and blessing. When I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous. What does that mean? They'll have enough and more, right? They're going to go into a land outside the wilderness where they have enough and they have more than enough. Then they will turn to other gods. Wow. They'll turn to other gods, right? Instead of falling on their knees and saying, look at all of this. This is God. This is what he's done for us. It's humbling. It's humiliating. Do you see what he's done? They're going to turn to another God because they want more. And the the God that's given them so much isn't giving giving them enough. 
They'll turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. That's what the love of more does to the heart. It draws you away from dependence on God. Israel was to learn that to live physically dependent upon God to provide one day at a time would demonstrate spiritual connection, spiritual reliance upon God. Physical abundance mixed with the sinful bent of every human heart breeds spiritual independence. And spiritual independence from God leads to spiritual rejection of God himself. In fact, it breeds what is inherent in our heart, self-dependence. It doesn't just lead you away to some foreign God. The foreign God it leads you away to is making yourself God. And we're all prone to that. And it doesn't take much time. And you can say, well, I've been in church and I've been spiritually vigorous and, and I know good theology and I'm real careful. And yes, but watch, watch your heart in relationship to prosperity. Watch your heart in relationship to dependence on the Lord. Now, we need to be careful. I I don't think that what Jesus means here is, I want all wealthy people to feel terrible about themselves. Guilty. If you have more than you need, you just, just feel guilty. We could do that. Go sell everything you have if you've got more than you need. And give it to the church. Right? We'll take care of it for you. We don't need to live ashamed of what God has given us, do we? In fact, we equally need to remember what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4. In verse 4 it says, everything created by God is good. Did you hear that? Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if, watch this, it's not to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. What is gratitude? That breeds dependence on God. I'm grateful for what God has given. So don't reject things, don't reject wealth. If he blesses you with prosperity, then cultivate gratitude. It's to be received and enjoyed. It is sanctified, he says, by means of the word of God and prayer. I want you to think about that. If you're looking for a verse of why I think you should pray before you eat, you say, oh, that's not a verse. That just means have a grateful heart for what you you do have when you eat. And, and, And it is that. But what does it mean that it's sanctified by the word of God and prayer? The word of God in prayer is your acknowledgement of what the word of God says about what you possess and you express it to him explicitly in some kind of prayer. It's an actual action of expressing a God-centered heart toward what he has given. So don't reject things. Assign to it a grateful heart that expresses itself in explicit communication to God. Pray and thank him. Every single time you sit down to a meal, could you say, God, you have given us our daily bread. Look, look at it. 
So we should enjoy what we have. We should enjoy the things that God has given us. We should enjoy the ingenuity of the human ability to create what we've created. That, that's incredible to see that, but with a heart that's still dependent in gratitude upon God. And we, we know enjoying what we possess, that's not an end in itself. It's not just to enjoy for enjoyment's sake. It's to enjoy out of God-centeredness. So while those who have more than they need for each day shouldn't feel guilty, all of us in this room have more than what we need. We do. Every single one of us in here. We have way more than what we need. Even, Even the poorest among us, we have more than we actually need. If you have more than one set of clothing, if you, if you have any place in which you could lay down tonight and, and escape the elements as, as warm as it is outside, if you, if you have any confidence that you'll be able to eat today and you think that and you have confidence you'll eat beyond that, you probably have more than you actually need. So we should all watch our hearts. Do you know that? We should all watch our hearts. Jot down a few verses. Again, out of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 4 tells us, be grateful for everything. Sanctify it through the word of God in prayer. Yes, out of gratitude. But 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by what? Contentment. Godliness can bring you many things. If you, if you work hard, which could be a godly attitude, proverbially, it could lead to increase for you, increased possessions. If you're storing up for wise reasons, then you could, you could actually develop some prosperity. And that could be a godly thing if, if you are content. So it's a good question to ask, are you saving from a heart of contentment? Are you content if God were to take it away through some, some means? Would you, would you say, but I'm, I'm satisfied in the Lord, I'm content. If he took it all away, I, I would be content in him, I trust him. Or do you save with anxiety? Do you store up, do you work hard? Do you work with contentment in your heart? Or do you work as if, I don't know, I don't know if we're gonna make it. Anxiety. Now, godliness, it can bring gain, but only with contentment. Or think about verse 9 in 1 Timothy 6. Those who want to get rich. Not those who are rich. Those who want to get rich. Those who, who in the back of their mind, they're longing to be wealthy. They want more. They're not content. They're always wanting more. That, that's why they work. I have to have more. And that's why they get another job, because I need more. And that's the, why they work as many hours as they do, perhaps, because they, they need more. You want to get rich? Listen to this. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And by the way, those phrases, ruin and destruction, are not just related to your temporal condition, but to your spiritual condition. 
If the heart desires wealth, you fall into the kinds of temptations that lead you away from God and will spiritually ruin you. Just because you want wealth. That desire for wealth means you're not content with God. It's not living, as his prayer says, give us this day our daily bread. Or even 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money, not the possession of money, right? The love of money. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it, just wanting it have wandered away from the faith. That's spiritual ruin and destruction. They've wandered away from the faith and they pierced themselves with many griefs. That's why Jesus would say back in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, verse 24, you cannot serve God and wealth. You can have wealth and serve God, but you cannot serve. You cannot be a servant to wealth and God. That's why this element of personal prayer is likely first and emphatic among all the personal requests that are mentioned here. God makes a specific connection between our physical need and our spiritual dependence. They're connected. They're not independent from one another. If we live as if we have little need, we will live as if we had no need to be dependent on God. And whether we have just enough to survive or more than enough to survive for years, we have to intentionally cultivate a heart that sees our physical and spiritual need as daily dependent on God. We need to think about what we possess and assess if it leads us to our knees in grateful dependence. Or do we see our abundance as producing more satisfaction in ourselves and an independence from depending on God. How could you do that? How could you cultivate a heart that's daily dependent on the Lord? Especially in connection with prayer. Well, just a few suggestions that you might do. If you keep a a little book maybe that you write things down for prayer in, just so that you can be reminded of them. Maybe you dedicate a page of that little book. And maybe at the top of that page, you just put up their daily gratitude. And you spend a moment, it doesn't have to be long. What are you grateful for today? Well, you'll quickly rattle off all the basics, I'm sure. What about tomorrow? What else are you grateful for? And what about the next day? What else are you grateful for? Is it just the same things? Or are you ever expanding the way you see what God has done around you and you can see the list growing and daily you see it. And, and as we know, day to day brings forth certain changes. And how are you grateful for those changes? Are you grateful for, for when he pulls away perhaps some possessions or wealth or relationships? And when he adds some, and are you grateful in those moments because you're dependent on him? Have you thought through that? Could you cultivate that in such a way that you're expressing gratitude to God, but you're being very tangible and specific? Do you ever think through your daily schedule in prayer? I mean, intentionally think through your daily schedule. Who will you see? Who will you talk to? You know, it's the same people every day. You know, it's the co-workers, right? Like, Like co-workers have no needs. Or they have no impact on you or influence, do they? Of course they do. In fact, you are where you are at the jobs you're at and the houses you live in and the neighborhoods that you live in, you are there by God's design ordination so that you might be the flavor of Christ 
in that place? Have you thought through your daily schedule in terms of, Lord, I I know I'm going to need to be careful in what I I say. Could I be dependent on you even for that need to be wise in my communication, in my work ethic in front of my my boss? I I know I'm tempted to be lazy and and I go down this road and I don't get work done and that doesn't reflect the gospel. I'm, I'm desperately dependent to be focused or just even joyful. You're like, I have, a, I have a boring job. But is the Lord using it to provide? And perhaps the boring job that doesn't require more than 40 hours liberates you to serve other ways and you could be grateful for that? I mean, there's so many ways you could cultivate gratitude, even just looking through what's coming ahead today. Have you ever sat down and wrote that down specifically and concretely and used it as an expression of gratitude to God or a means of prayer and intercession for what's going on in your life? Just think through your daily schedule. Maybe you need to create another list, just a a list of dependence. For what are you dependent on God today? Just to force yourself to say, am I living in a way that is dependent on God and how and in what ways. As you're reading through the Bible and your daily Bible reading, was there anything in your reading today that reminded you of what it looks like or should look like to be dependent on God so that you use that as a catalyst to pray something like this, this category of dependency on God. This day, Lord, could you cultivate that in my heart for your glory? I see where I failed in that and I confess it to you. You see how you could practically begin to do that in prayer? As you begin to think about your life, how are you cultivating a sense in which you are constantly dependent on God? And I would just suggest, if you are not intentional in doing this, then you allow the bent of your heart that moves away from God to grow You must intentionally cultivate explicit ways in which you see God in everything around you. His kindness and his provision in absolutely everything. So for this to become personal, it's going to have to become practical. And the practical is going to have to be practiced. So, as you're praying personally, pray for the provision of your needs. Second, another way to pray dependently upon God regarding all the issues that surround us is pray for the forgiveness of our sins. Pray for the forgiving of our sins. That's explicitly what he says in verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And if you went down to verse 14, he continues the thought, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. That's a loaded statement, isn't it? That's really challenging. Now, I'm not completely sure as to the reason for Jesus separating the request for forgiveness and the explanation about forgiveness I don't know why he separated them. Perhaps the request to be led in a way that avoids temptation that we'll see later is related to the issue of forgiveness, perhaps. 
Perhaps how we approach forgiving others or withholding forgiveness is at the root of how and why we enter into periods of temptation. That could be. It could be that the request for forgiveness is simply another category in the model prayer that's so significant that it receives an expanded explanation at the end of it. Could be it. Nonetheless, have you noticed here in this instruction on prayer, forgiveness receives more content than any other theme? I wonder why. Why do you think? I'm, I'm pretty sure I know, if I just look at my heart, I'm pretty sure I know why it gets a lot of attention here. Forgiveness is hard. And, and, and it's really, it really can be a boulder between you and the Lord, can't it? It certainly can be a wall of separation between you and others. And if I and others are separated, it reflects something about my vertical relationship with the Lord, doesn't it? Now, while you need to be careful with it, Jesus is not here suggesting that God will only grant eternal forgiveness when we meet the criteria of forgiving people temporally. That's not the idea. I mean, when did God forgive you of your sins? When did he extend forgiveness to you? After you had got everything right with everybody? (laughs) Probably not. While you were still enemies. That's when he forgave you, right? So what we're not talking about here is the theological category of judicial forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness. The forgiveness that God gives you that liberates you from his judgment. There is no judgment for those who belong to him. So listen, we, we sang just a moment ago and the opening phrase was, I am a sinner. All right, that's true and not true all at the same time. Did you know that? So, and I mean, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, it's true and not true. Do you still sin? Yes. So in that sense, in a practical sense, you are a sinner because you still sin. But it's not true in the sense that you're not under the category of an unforgiven sinner. You're forgiven and you're liberated and there's no more judgment and there's no more justice that's going to be applied to your sinfulness. God has liberated you from that. This is not judicial forgiveness that's being talked about here. This is much more practical. Or as Thomas Watson said many years ago, is God angry with his pardoned ones? Though a child of God after pardon may incur his fatherly displeasure, yet his judicial wrath is removed. Though he may lay on the rod, yet he has taken away the curse. Correction may befall the saints, but not destruction. Isn't that good? So you may receive the judicial hand of God, maybe just in discipline, but not in wrath. Not in his judicial displeasure, just in his fatherly displeasure. There's a difference. In fact, Jesus, in this statement here in Matthew 6, uses a very unique word to describe what it is that we're requesting forgiveness. He calls it here in the New American Standards, it's translated as debts. Debts. The word is used only here and in Romans chapter 4, verse 4. It's the only times you're going to find this particular word, debt. Romans 4, 4 says this, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. That's the same word. What is due. That's a debt. What is due. One's due is what you owe, or that which is owed, an obligation that you have. And that's an interesting way to think about our sins against others and theirs toward us as an obligation. 
Sin is viewed here as something rightfully owed to another. And what is that that's owed to another? We have those who have sinned against us and we're to forgive our debtors, right? Those who have an obligation to us. What does that mean? I take that to mean there are people who have offended you and they are in the wrong. They treated you in an unjust way. There is an obligation for justice between you and them and they owe it to you. And you forgive them what they owe. And you liberate them from the obligation that they have to treat you correctly because they've treated you in an unjust way. But the request here is not about me forgiving others necessarily. It's about God forgiving me. Forgive us of our obligations. To whom? First and foremost, I think it should be clear. Who have we sinned against first and foremost? God himself. Even David, and you'll see it in Psalm 51, he recognizes that his sin against Bathsheba and her husband and others, the nation of Israel, he said, I have sinned against you and you only have I sinned. Yes, others had been sinned against, but his obligation and his debt was before God. He had offended God. He had treated God in an unjust and unrighteous way. And he needed forgiveness. So the request here indicates that we have treated God unjustly. Because that's who we're praying to. Forgive us our obligations. But you see it, don't you? When you look carefully at it. The request here is that God would forgive us the obligation that we owe him for treating him unjustly in the same way that we have forgiven others who have an obligation to us because they have treated us unjustly. Isn't that fascinating? What level of forgiveness from God would be given to us if it were given in accordance to the way that we've forgiven others who have treated us poorly? You ever thought about that? If the level of God's forgiveness to you, even his fatherly forgiveness, was meted out in accordance with the level of forgiveness that you, you show to others who have offended you, where you're in the right and they're in the wrong, Would God ever forgive you? Would he ever release you? Would you ever... Would you ever experience it? Now, that that can be quite scary, can't it? I think it can. I'll leave it for you to meditate on a little bit, just for time's sake, I won't go there, but you could jot down Matthew 18, because that's a great little illustration of this. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. It's an illustration he gave his disciples of how extensive forgiveness should be toward other people. In the illustration describes a man who was in debt to his king to the tune of about 15 years worth of annual wages. 15 years. Now in the ancient world, 15 years of annual wages, you're probably never going to pay that back. There's no way you could pay that back. And the king was preparing to send that individual to a debtor's prison. And the debtor pled for the king's mercy and he promised that he'd repay it back, even though that's, there's no way he would ever do that. 
And the king knew that. He can't pay this back. But he looked at this man and he was so heartfelt and he was so desperate. He was moved to compassion. And the king took that immovable debt that this man owed and threw it all the way and released it from it. And then the illustration goes on. You remember it, don't you? If you've never read it, you should go spend a little time in it. But the the illustration goes on and it turns to this forgiven debtor looking at another man in his life who owed him one day's wage. Not 15 years of annual wages, one day's wage, which could easily be paid back. And and he pleads, he says, listen, I'll, I'll pay it back. I could do it. And it's likely that he could have done it. But this forgiven debtor would not forgive the lesser debt. And you remember the point Jesus makes at the end of that. My heavenly father will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And what was that? Well, the king heard what that forgiven debtor would not do for the lesser debt. And he said, take that man and throw him into prison. What do you think the father, our heavenly father will do to those? I mean, if you can't forgive anybody, what's this a sign of? You don't understand Forgiveness. So it's clear. Kingdom people are forgiven people. And forgiven people are people who keep forgiving others. How does that impact your prayer life? Well, I think part of living in in a dependent way upon God personally is recognizing how deep our indebtedness is to him because of our sin and seeing how lavish his forgiveness is on us. We confess our sins seeking practical mercy from our sins on a regular basis, don't we? Sure. And as we do so, we don't do that in any other way other than just thinking about how immensely kind the Lord has been to us. You ever do that practically? So daily and regularly in prayer, we need to cultivate a mindset of seeking the Father's practical forgiveness for our own sin, but also thinking about those who've sinned against us. And how would we think about the lavish way we have forgiven them in relationship to the lavish way that God has forgiven us? Is there anyone in your life with whom you maintain a recalcitrant heart? Who do you have a heart toward that is hard and cold? What injustices have they committed? Write their names down. List their sins. And as you're pleading for God to be merciful to you for your injustices committed against him, think about those on your list and what they've done. Think about how great the debt is that the Lord is forgiving you of. This needs to be practical. So should forgiveness be practical. If you're withholding involvement from someone that you are hard towards, how could you be biblically involved with the person you struggle with? How are you specifically seeking their spiritual good? How are you looking to cultivate a biblically healthy relationship with those who have actually offended you? Are you excusing yourself by saying something like, well, I can treat them well, well, I just don't, I don't have to be friends with them. I can be nice, I can like them, I don't have to, you know, I, have to, I can love them, I don't have to like them, that kind of stuff, which is usually just paper mache over poison. 
I think this could be another page in your prayer book. You, know, you can think through it. Do you have a page where you're actually confessing sin, that you're mindful of sin that God has forgiven you of? Not, not sins to just make you more and more guilty, but sins, I confess this to the Lord under my relationship with Christ. I see that and I see and I'm cultivating a grateful heart for his forgiveness. But could you also start a page in your prayer book? These are people I need to forgive. And you use that as a point of prayer over what do you need to forgive them? And what would it look like? And are you praying about that? Are you seeking God's help in this? What scriptures have you written down in your prayer book that would remind you often of the lavish kindness of God to forgive you? Have you ever thought about our church as a whole? Did you know that we as a church often commit sins against others? Corporately, we could. Perhaps it is the way that our congregation has ignored needs in our community. Ways that we've not been faithful in our witness. We've not disciplined ourselves in sin. And we've allowed sin to exist within us in such a way that it's tarnishing the the view of Christ by other congregations or other people in the world around us. Perhaps that's a point of confession as well before the Lord. I, I would also encourage you, I found this to be helpful to my own soul at times. I'm, I, you know, you read different books and, and you find great statements on forgiveness and the liberation of God of your soul and, and things that would encourage you to liberate others. Do you take some of those quotes and just write them down? List the scriptures. Put those quotes from those great writers in the past so that you might look at it in prayer and remind yourself of it and respond to God. Do you even think about the sins of your life that plague your life and it's having impact on others? How are you fighting those sins? How are you fighting them? We'll talk a little bit more about that next time because it it does come up. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We'll talk about that more. But you can see this, this kind of approach to prayer helps us live in a dependent way upon the Lord, whether it's daily sustenance and every need of every day, or if it's even in relationship with each other. This is how you pray. Now, if I took those things and I thought about all the things that like COVID and politics and justice are stirring up in my heart, how much would even these two requests impact the way you see what's happening in your life in response to what's going on around you personally. Think about it. It takes the Bible and connects it to what's going on in your life directly. Rather than just fuel your mind with your normal thoughts and the normal bent of your heart and everything else that you're reading online and in other books, how are you praying in this way regarding the way your heart is responding to people and to God day after day. That's how we pray for ourselves personally. That's how we pray for others personally. That's how we pray personally. 